electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Appreciate it, Carl. Thank you. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. This midday move in stocks as the debt ceiling duel appears to take a bit of a negative turn. We're watching that along, of course, with the Fed chair who just finished speaking, debating what all of it means to the markets and your money. Joining me for the hour, Bryn Talkington, Steve Weiss, Bill Baruch is with us today. And our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman, also standing by for what Mr. Powell, uh, the chair of the Fed, had to say. So, Bryn, we're we're watching 4200 very closely on the S&P 500, which we gave up on those headlines about the debt ceiling. We have CNN reporting that Treasury Secretary Yellen telling bank CEOs more mergers may be necessary. So we're trying to digest all of this in the context of what's been a pretty good week for the markets. Yeah, well, I think all eyes really are not on the S&P, but on the NASDAQ, you know, so the further you away you are from AI and, and AI derivatives, the worse your performance is. So, you know, the NASDAQ just broke out the past couple of days. It's August 2022 levels. And so it has broken above, but it's extremely overbought. And so, you know, we've talked about this a lot, the extreme narrowness of the market. I think some of it's warranted. I do believe that this seismic AI shift is real. We all see it. Unlike cryptocurrency, which we couldn't really understand, we see this, know how to use it. It's going to generate real efficiencies. That being said, I do think it's too fast. And so I think for, 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 my, for my positions, I would like to put on some calls, some hedges, especially in these names that have run so fast, so hard. And I think that the cherry on the Sunday will be next week when NVIDIA comes out. And so I think collectively putting this together, sprinkle in a Sunday debt ceiling hike. I'm not surprised the market is going to go into Friday weaker just because of the huge run we've had on top of, once again, the nonsense of, of politics in, in Washington as usual. Yeah, but we weren't. We weren't uh, weaker. Um, Steve Weiss, um, Apple. Alphabet Meta hitting new 52-week highs. Stocks are coming off their highest close of the year. We've been, we're nicely above 4,200 before, you know, we got the, the headlines from Kayla about the debt ceiling talks breaking off for the moment. So how do we, how do we see all this now on, on a Friday morning or mid-afternoon? Well, first of all, I think Brent puts it perfectly, is that if you're not in the NASDAQ, you're not in those few stocks, then your performance is not doing particularly well. Uh, NASDAQ's coming off basically a month of great performance, and it's been narrow. Uh, so selfishly, I'd like to see us go right up to the wire on the debt talks, the debt limit talks, because then the market will really trade down, and I'll get a chance to buy some more stocks that perhaps I've missed. Uh, I don't think we're going to default. But you take what, what you know, the interview that was just with, uh, with the CEO of Foot Locker, and you see it's really two worlds. The luxury area continues to do well. 
right? That's an impregnable category of consumer. But yet everything underneath, including not just those that live paycheck to paycheck, which is most of the country, but also the middle class starting to feel the pressure. We've heard that constantly. We looked at dear earnings today. The stock traded up 4%, and then it went negative as they talked about the back half of the quarter, down, down, second, down next quarter for earnings, and then believing we're going to be better. And deer is well positioned because they've got lots of new products. They're reinventing farming. So the point of it is that the weakness is there. It's been delayed a little bit because we've had free money for so long. But I, you know, I'm more on the fence talking to people, some of the same people you talk to that are there that were not just Steve Cohen, who you had mentioned, you know, Wednesday I was on the show and his comments. But, you know, I, I think the bait everybody's going for is, okay, is my weight should I be impatient? Should I throw the towel in on bearishness, right? And say this is going to be, you know, this is another bull market, or is the delay in the impact of the Fed, you know, just extended versus prior cycles? I don't know right now, Scott. So how that's coming out? So I'll continue to pick up, you know, equities where I'm getting paid to pick them up, meaning that they're so dislocated. Mm -hmm. Deer may, in fact, be one of those. When it, you know, if it comes down some more, even right here, I sold the stock at about 410. It was great sale. I sold Microsoft at 255, a horrible sale. So, so if you can tell, there's some confusion there is in my in my voice, and uh, you know, I don't know how to play. I'd like I'd like to have an easy decision put in front of me, right. which is real fear, as I said, as I started over the debt ceiling, and then I know I can get in. Yeah. Right now, it's sort of like. You know, six one half dozen the other. You know, Leesman, if if not for these debt ceiling talk headlines, I I wonder what the market would be doing based on what the Fed chair had to say, because he certainly seemed to not be on the same page necessarily with the Bullards or Logans of the world whom we heard from earlier this week. If anything, he sort of leaned, I feel, a little bit dovish. I like your analysis, Scott, because I was also just trying to bear down into the tick of the market to see if the downdraft came as a result of the walkout on the debt talks or if it came in response to what Powell said. Powell started off a little bit on the hawkish side, mentioning inflation, not the banking stuff, but he kind of cured that later on. And, and, and he took a firm stance in the middle, if you could, if you will, uh, where he said, look, we've not, not made any decisions. And I'll just give you some of the headlines that I heard from Powell, where he said tighter credit conditions could ease the pressure to raise rates. Uh, that's something he said before, but in the context of what's been said by other Fed officials in the last couple of days was a direct shot at them and a more sort of dovish solve to the market than what they've been hearing. He also said the stance of policy is restrictive and we face uncertainty about the lagged effects of tightening. And he went on to say the risks of doing too much or too little are becoming more balanced. And you'll remember, Scott, that that was something that had not been the case for many, many months where he kept saying the risk of doing too little is, is worse. And what's happened as a result is that the odds of a um, June rate hike, which had become elevated as a result of comments made by Logan Bullard and Bowman the week before, they had gone up to as high as 40 percent, where you might have argued the pause is in peril. And now you can say the pause is back in play. 
right? Now it's down to 14%. So, and, and, and I just want to emphasize Powell at that point was reading from what seemed to be like prepared remarks. So what he said he meant to say, and it sounded to me like it was a direct kind of redirect, Scott, of the market back into the middle from the tendency that had been going on, which is to start to bake in a June rate hike. Yeah, you, you make a good point, too, reading from prepared text rather than off the cuff. And, you know, Bill Baruch, I'm wondering how you're putting all this into context as, you know, algos react to headlines about debt ceiling. Algos don't necessarily listen all that well to the nuance of a Fed chair who may not be in in step by step agreement with Fed speakers of earlier in the week. Yeah, the Fed has to be a surgeon here. And that's really you know what, what you're saying. You're getting the headline reaction, I think, more in the debt ceiling, as, as you and Steve Leisman acknowledged. But we've heard from the Logan, uh, we've heard from Bullards that, that they are more hawkish. And they're playing this Jekyll and Hyde sort of narrative. They can't let the algos, they can't let the, the managers really lean to one, one side on the position because of the market, they call it the market's reaction function. So they're very, very careful right here to talk about it. Maybe they pause. I think I don't think they, they hike, although earlier in the week, I thought the odds were a little too low. So getting up there to 20 to 40 percent become a little more balanced and, and put the market on its on its back foot. But you can't ignore what's really kind of going on within the market itself. And, and Brent acknowledged that it's it's the it's the Nasdaq tech is running. We've seen the narrative shift away from the Fed more so. And there's other tailwinds that are that are there. Earnings have been solid. You look out that some of the tech companies, they're being priced in 2024 now. It's not about right here, right now. The, the capitulation took place last year. We're in a bull market. And I penned a note to clients to, to, to start the month. By in May, this bull market is here to stay. And I think that is really what you got to look at, because at the end of the day, the Fed's goal was to bring down inflation. And the Cleveland Fed inflation now cast for May is, is 4.16 right now. Headline. So we're coming down and it's going to improve. It'll be a three handle through the summer. Steve Leisman, do, do any of these remarks today around credit issues and the bank and the outlook for where rates may have to go or, or not, the fact that the, the Fed chair said what he did today about the policy rate might not having to rise as much because of credit issues around the banks. Is he in agreement or disagreement with some of the other members of the Fed who may not think that those credit issues are as serious as perhaps he does, even incrementally more so? I would say he is at least temporarily in disagreement. I, I think he is still concerned about it. He's still worried that, that this ends up being um, you know, uh, Lori Logan used the phrase nonlinear. What that means is it just goes off the chart. It goes it goes higher in a way that you cannot predict it. Um, and that's always a concern when it comes to uh, credit issues, Scott. It's that you can raise rates by say you were to raise the interest rate on a loan from six to seven percent. You know, then you would have a predictable decline in lending. When it goes nonlinear, lending could crash in the result of higher, higher credit standards and stuff like that. That's what policymakers worry about. So Powell seems to still be more concerned about that, whereas Bullard seemed to kind of kiss it off the other day where he said it's been overstated mm -hmm. uh, and that the um, uh, bigger concern is the decline in yields, which ends up working the other way in easing financial conditions for the Fed. So Powell is still in that camp and he remains to be convinced. Let me just emphasize, Scott, this doesn't mean Powell, you know, would necessarily balk at a rate hike in June if the data were to uh, accelerate again. But if you get that cooperation that was just being discussed from the, from the CPI numbers and the inflation numbers coming up, 
then it, pause would be back in play. Yeah. I mean, maybe it just means that the meeting's going to be more live, so to speak, than maybe some had expected not, you know, a, a couple weeks ago. Steve, thank you. Uh, Steve Leisman, uh, breaking all of it sure. down, doing what he does best, reading between the lines, really, of what all of this means for policymaking going forward from the Fed. But I want to, Steve, get back to this issue of what tech has done. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, NASDAQ 100's up four weeks in a row. We mentioned Apple within 10 bucks or so of a, a, a new uh, all-time high. And what we're supposed to do with that in the context of the flow show, Michael Harton at Bank of America talking about AI being a, quote, baby bubble. Wells Fargo's Chris Harvey reminds us of 99, 2000 in the way that, you know, AI has fueled these stocks. And I know it's so early in the game, but growth has just pushed past uh, value from such a, a tremendous degree of late. Yeah, you know, I I agree that it's a bubble in terms of what it's done to a lot of stocks. But I also agree that it's here to stay and that it I do buy into it being an industrial revolution, the fifth one. So um, so I think you want to be positioned. Look, I, I didn't have time to talk to, to Patty before the show or esteemed uh, supervising producer, but I did nibble on Microsoft, nibble on Microsoft. And the reason I did Microsoft, I hate the multiple. Right. But I want to get involved and it's very, very small, but I'm comfortable owning it because it's a perennial compounder. And when I buy stocks, I look for perennial compounders rather than a moment in time. So, look, I, I sort of hope I'm too early in terms of an impending market correction and I could really size up on, as I said earlier, horrible decision selling at 250 after I owned it for so long. So AI is here to stay. However, you know, I meet with so many private companies and all of a sudden everybody's got an AI approach. It's not going to work for all of them. As I said months ago, 90% of companies that say AI and it's nothing new have nothing to do in AI. No, well, that's why the pure players right? are the ones who are exactly. out distancing themselves, right. at least initially. Like an NVIDIA. From the, I don't want to say pretenders, right. but the ones who are seemingly trying to figure out any way to mention AI right. being a part of their business as a stimulator for their growth. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I can't tell you in how many meetings I've been in where people talk about NVIDIA. They don't talk about anybody else except NVIDIA and their chips. So I keep asking myself, why shouldn't I own it? But I've got discipline in terms of what I'm willing to pay. I'm stretching that discipline with the multiple Microsoft. I just can't bring myself. You don't know how much I'm hoping, no offense, Bryn, no offense to anybody else who owns it, hoping that they really miss the quarter, that they really miss it. And I get I know, an What are the chances of, of that happening? Not a lot. Not a lot. You'll see it in their data center business. You'll see it in their other business, their gaming business, in other areas. You won't see it in the chips, but the chips are not the biggest part of the business right now, AI chips. So that's my hope. Could be wrong. I'm not going to buy it if they don't miss. Yeah. So that's my only hope. I mean, and this doesn't justify in any way whether their valuation, we're talking about NVIDIA, of course, yeah. at this moment, right. because it's doubled yeah. this year, right. along with Meta. But it. You know, its valuation obviously is the highest of this core that we're we're talking about. Is is it justified or not? That's well, for you to say, not me. You know, it has run a lot, and, and I've been on the show over the last couple months. It's been our largest position. I've trimmed it a little bit. You got to manage that that risk. But here's here's the thing: is I think they could raise guidance. Now, what is the total? What's the TAM? What's the total addressed market market cap for for AI? And I think you know, some say 100 billion. 
I think Nvidia's calling right around 300 billion. What if it's a trillion? What if it continues to expand from, to, to all the companies from industrials to a McDonald's and everybody starts to incorporate it into, into software to the user? It's going to be there. And uh, if Nvidia is by far the leader, their software suite is, is just knocks everything else out of the water. They, I think, will we'll raise guidance. I, I think there's going to be a lot of positive tailwinds behind the report. Bryn, what about you? You own it. Yeah, well, so I think we all have to understand also is these other big companies have all been working on their own chips. I know Microsoft and Amazon are absolutely um, working on their AI chips. And so I think that while NVIDIA is clearly in the pole position, I do think that, you know, Microsoft is also the other, you know, derivative play. But when I think through which companies are actually going to be able to monetize this, when I look at Google, you know, Google is an advertising company. Please don't forget that. And so to me, ultimately, embedding their BARD and their system in their, in their, in their ecosystem actually would make me want to search less because I can just go straight to the answer. I'm sure they'll figure out how to monetize it, but to me, it's not so clear. With Microsoft, it's crystal clear because with Copilot, which they're going to launch inside of all of their office suite, inside of AWS, I mean, inside of Azure, it's going to make them so much more efficient. And as an Outlook user, we're just going to see that in our daily lives. So I think that even though Microsoft has had a, has had a really nice run this year, I think the ability to turn that into profits for Microsoft, I think is a very high prob probability. And I think they will turn that on sooner than later. So I would still stay along Microsoft. And although it's run, I definitely don't. I think it's the early innings of them being able to monetize it, especially when they come out with their own chips, which will be an affront to NVIDIA at some point. People tried, Steve, to write off Alphabet, right. I think rather quickly. Yeah. No, you know, they, they took comments from the CEO on 60 Minutes, along with the announcement from Microsoft about ChatGPT to assume, or at least to make the um, you know, investable leap that somehow it, that Alphabet missed the boat and that they were going to have to play such a, a tough game of yep. catch up when Alphabet's stock year to date has outpaced Microsoft. Yeah, It's up 39%. Now, they've all had great years thus far. Yeah. But it's not like Alphabet hasn't been rewarded for any of this at all. No, no, that, that's true. Part of it was that it was so oversold and it's got the lowest multiple of all of them. So people say, let me, let me go there, and they got there in a hurry. And, you know, there's some good news on, on, on Alphabet today, which is that Samsung is not going to replace them, not considering replacing them with Bing anymore. So that's not actually in the stock price today, but think about that. That was a real threat. Now, just to follow up with what Bryn said, um, look exactly, and I don't think that being a trillion dollar market for AI, which could be, right? Who cares if it's a 300 billion or a trillion, that's still got lots of growth. You're dealing with very well subsidized competitors, that it's in their interest not to see the market entirely to NVIDIA. And at 70 times, it's like they're the only player in the market. So others come on. In terms of Microsoft, Microsoft, the one of the things I love about, always love about, it's recurring revenue, right? They've got their subscription model that was put in after Bomber left. It was always subscription model, but even more so. Think about that. They can go out by putting AI 
ChatGPT in there, which is now their official partner, and recreate their whole office suite so people got to re-up. So that's what I love that. That's why it deserves the multiple that it has now and why NVIDIA, I don't believe, will keep their multiple going forward. So we're, we're in early, early stages, but nobody's going to say, okay, we're going to allow NVIDIA to continue to charge premium pricing. It's up to us to create more capacity so that pricing comes down and that will impact their years. Do you, do you feel like, Bill, we're in any kind of like wolf technicals today they, they say this is the final stage of a blow-off top in the NDX, the, the NASDAQ 100, which I mentioned is up four weeks in a row. Yeah. And the stocks within it have been, especially if you're related to AI, you've been off to the races. I, I think this is the middle innings of the AI push. I think we've had the... Are you, are you talking about stock performance? Yes, yes, stock performance and, and where we can go from here. I, I think we're in the middle. That doesn't mean NVIDIA is going to be the leader going forward. I think that from a stock performance standpoint. How can it, we be even, I mean, that middle innings, well, this, we just started 20, getting our arms around this whole thing uh, 20 billion you know, of AI five, six so months ago. They've only addressed about 20 billion market you know, total market of, of AI. There's a lot of room to grow here, but the, but you're now seeing a lot of the other stocks start to break out of, of technical patterns. I mean, they're, I mean, but there's which also it's not because of technicals; it's because of of the tailwind. So I'm I'm talking about AI in general right now, and I think we're in the middle innings there. But you also have the early innings, middle. Is I think where I would argue with you. How could we be in the middle innings? We just started. I think middle innings a price. Middle innings a price of where these stocks can go from here. But if you take a step back and you look at, it's not just the AI tailwinds. I mean, you look back to where this market was in last year, the capitulation, the negativity, the people, the managers positioned offsides that now some have to chase. And, and I think there's there's money that can still come into the market and there's very, very constructive. I, I think the fundamentals right now, although you can say that there's slowing consumer, I think the fundamentals can, can continue to be a tailwind. So I think there's a lot of a lot of reasons to look for this market to continue to gravitate higher. Doesn't mean we can't have a pullback from time to time, but I think we're looking at this is finally breaking the range and there's a lot of room to that. What if anything breaks these stocks? Is it more Fed tightening than the market expects? I mean, that's part of what Harvey or Wells Fargo is talking about you just look at 99 to 2000 yeah. sort of what breaks that what broke it you know you get fed tightening right and and obviously rates go up and just the economy cracks and and i don't care really kind of where you are in the market the market goes down Right. What breaks it is what broke deer today from being up 4% to being marginally down or flat, which is that, yeah, we just put up a great quarter, tremendous quarter, but we're lowering expectations for the next quarter and we're optimistic about the rest of the year. I know, but you're tell so, are you telling me that a Microsoft or an Apple or an NVIDIA no, or a Meta are going to say where we, we see no. softening demand? Right. So, no. so, so let me parse a little bit about what you said. In terms of the market, market has broken for the majority of stocks. Right, they're still down, half or down year to date. Right, so you're talking about this very narrow advance. So if the narrow, the narrow advance has defined the market, we talk about where Nasdaq is, it's a narrow advance. So what breaks them? I don't see anything breaking them. They've already reported earnings. Right, nobody's going to give up on them. We've got this whole new, you know, era and generation of investor that's going to stay with it. Who's saying I'm retiring in 35 years? What's the difference if they go down 10, 20, or 30 percent? They're going to 
recover as they did from the pandemic, from the great financial crisis, et cetera. So I think those are safe because that's what this generation of investors understands and gravitates to. They don't understand the deers right. and the others. All right. So let's go through some moves that you guys have made. You already talked about Microsoft. Yep. Uh, which was it you did. Uh, you bought Broadcom. Yes. Bill? Yes. Why? Very tactical play. In a technical basis, it's breaking out. But they got a 7% free cash flow yield. They, they have a, a multiple under 20. And, and there was something very quietly took place on Wednesday evening was Synopsys reported earnings. Now, Synopsys does the electronic chip design or electronic design automation. I think that was a big tailwind to a lot of the chips, some of the Japanese news, the Micron as well. But there is so much good news surrounding the semiconductor space. And Synopsys, I think, was a catalyst for other semiconductors to now have that tailwind. And Broadcom is certainly one of them. Okay. Uh, Brian, you bought more Tesla. Why did you do that? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I like to play Tesla and I like to hedge the position. So the stock has been basing out and bouncing around the 170s. And so to me, it looked like it was going to start to break out. So I bought it at 172, but I sold the September 190 calls and I got $14. So that's an 8% yield for four months out. So my total return, if I'm capped out, if it gets called away, is 20% in four months. But if I'm wrong, let's say Tesla's weak, I have that $14 that I just collected. And so I think it's a really nice entry port where I can get some upside. And I used the, the source of funds was PayPal, which I sold because I don't think it's going to participate if this market continues to run. Gotcha. All right. Let's step away uh, for a couple of minutes, take our first break. Up next, goodbye, Gorman, Morgan Stanley CEO, Jim Gorman, announcing uh, his plans to step down. We'll lay out what's next for the big bank and its investors. Halftime's back in two. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit ODFL.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is LinkedIn.com slash Halftime Report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to LinkedIn.com slash Halftime Report and get started. Welcome back. Big news in banking today. Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman announcing plans to step down over the next 12 months. He'll assume the role of executive chairman. 
Our Leslie Picker joins us now with more on this and how we should think about this news today and what he's going to leave uh, behind as, as CEO. Leslie? Yeah, his legacy is, is a pretty instrumental one in kind of changing the strategic makeup of Morgan Stanley. He saw se he oversaw several uh, mergers, which increased the prominence of wealth management, of investment management, outperformed his peers over the time frame, over the 13 years that he was CEO. Uh, and this 12-month time frame, it's been pretty well telegraphed that he did have plans to step down. I think it was last year where he said he'd step down uh, within the next five years or so. And those who are in contention for that top spot also pretty well telegraphed over the past year or so. Um, and so I think from here, it really just now centers on this idea of who it will be um, and when. He turned 65 in July, uh, you know, but we should have some sense, uh, you know, over the next 12 months, as he mentioned. I've seen some of the, you know, chatter around the names that were showing on the, the wall back at our headquarters, Leslie, and, and who might be, you know, the, the favorite if you will. And, yeah. you know, one thing that's so interesting is that, you know, Gorman really leaned into the wealth management side of, of Morgan Stanley. And, you know, the results from a share price are noticeable. So, too, yep. are the way that other firms are, are reacting to their own businesses because they've seen the success road as it relates to wealth management oh, yeah. that 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 James Gorman, you know, drove. One of the analysts said that wealth management actually comprises about two-thirds of Morgan Stanley's market cap at that time. They've driven um, higher returns as a result of just building up this business. So you've got an Andy Saperstein, for example. He runs wealth. He's one of the, the three gentlemen who are in contention for that CEO spot. Wells Fargo thinks as a result of this, he could be the leading candidate given just the growth of wealth. But then you have KBW. Um, on the other hand, who says that Ted Pick might be a more likely choice because he runs the institutional group, which is sales and trading, investment banking, and so forth. And he's really credited with turning around their FIC trading business. Um, and so he's seen kind of more as that turnaround candidate um, in the sales and trading, um, investment banking side of things. Yeah, Leslie, good stuff. Thank you. That's Leslie Picker joining us. We'll continue to game it out, no doubt. Uh, over the last uh, over the months ahead, of course, y you own. Yes. Of the three on the show today, you're the only one who owns Morgan Stanley. Yeah. What do you think? It's our only financial exposure moved away from the banks, especially regional banks at the end of last year. M more worry about the lending side of it. Um, I, I like I mean, this thing this is very prepared. It's like the Green Bay Packers handing the reins to Aaron Rodgers from from Brett Favre. There's there's three very capable guys there. I think Pick or Saperstein are going to be the likely of the two. But 50% of the revenues come from wealth management. Do they want to now take Saperstein in order to you know maybe spread him thin? Maybe Pick's the leading candidate. Do but you I'm not carry worried. the way as a shareholder? I'm sorry. Do you care either way as a shareholder? You know what? I, I I don't. I like the direction of the company. Gorman's put them at 13 years at the helm. Has put them in, a, in the right spot. They've separated from Goldman Sachs, and they are a leader within the space. How do you think about this one? Uh, first of all, how do you not love a guy that says he's not going out like Logan Roy from Succession? <laughs> Just a great quote. Uh, look, he's done an amazing job. And if you remember, and I remember it because I was one of the doubters early on, can he do this? Can he transition the company? And he did it phenomenally well. It's a stock I look at all three candidates. I don't know them personally. I do know them from other people. Uh, 
they are very highly qualified, either can do it. Saperstein, given the direction he took the company, may be the lead in it because it's a wealth managed business, recurring revenue, but banking as well also. However, you know, my touch points are greatest with Goldman. That's why I love it, because of those touch points. I've never been disappointed. So that's what I'll stay with, and that's enough. Gorman probably was throwing darts at your picture in, in his office from in the early days. I remember that. Yeah. I remember that. But they really, and he, the lean-in on wealth management was a game-changer for them, yeah. and certainly from a stock performance standpoint. Yeah. I, I mean, he executed, uh, and, and I turned early on it, but just phenomenal, phenomenal execution. Just what a job. Think about the culture he had to change with Morgan Stanley, and he successfully did it. And think about, because I've had to manage these type of people, you're managing high-performing superstars who are highly independent, and he got them in line, built a great business. All right, coming up, we'll do our call of the day. It's an energy stock, just got named a top pick at one Wall Street firm. It's down 20% this year. Bryn owns it, which means we'll debate it. We'll do it next. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Halftime Report. I'm Contessa Brewer with your CNBC News update. A top Chinese commerce official will travel to the U.S. next week to participate in rare trade talks. The U.S. and China have seldom held meetings in recent years, but of course they're important economic partners. And bilateral trade between the two superpowers hit a historic high of $760 billion last year. Hyundai and Kia have agreed to pay $200 million to settle a consumer class action lawsuit following a TikTok challenge that exposed just how vulnerable those cars are to being stolen. The settlement covers about 9 million U.S. owners, and the majority of the money, as much as 145 million, will go to people whose cars were actually stolen or damaged in attempted theft. Target has recalled millions of candles because of a burn and cut risk. The recall covers nearly 5 million threshold branded glass jar candles sold in multiple sizes and in various scents. We're just going to show you the logo, not the actual candle. Target received 137 reports of the jars breaking or cracking during use, and apparently six people got injured. All right, that's the news, Scott. Okay, Contessa, thank you. Let's get to our call of the day now. It's Devon Energy named a top pick at Mizuho. Analyst there says... Stocks underappreciated, uh, underappreciating some of the tailwinds at the company. Uh, Bryn, you own Devin, right? I sure do. So I think it was a, it was a great report. I think the backdrop. Well, the report really tried to discern the difference within that there's going to be security selection, not just broad movement within the space, which which I agree. I think the overall overarching hang on these names is going into late cycle. People are worried about a recession, you know, WTIs in the 70s. And so what do you do? You sell energy. So that playbook is just like playing out kind of textbook. I think what investors are missing, though, 
is that especially in the next few months, as inflation comes down, the soft landing drum beats get louder. I think the one area that's really mispriced is oil. Devon has excellent leadership. They've got a great bench. You know, their earnings were was May 8th. They increased their share buyback by 50%. They continue to pay that fixed variable. I do think some investors were disappointed they actually did more buybacks versus pushing that through to shareholders. But the way I would have been playing it as I continue to sell calls. So even though I'm down on the, on the name year to date, I've actually earned 9% in call premium. So for investors wanting to play it right now, I think a good, a good trade would be buy Devon, it's around 49. You could sell the September 55 calls, collect about $2 of premium. And so that gives you between capital appreciation, a, a dividend payment and the option around a 16% upside. If it goes lower, once again, you can pl start playing the calls and, and, and make money from there. But okay. I definitely think the energy sector as a whole is the one mispriced area in the market. All right. Yeah. Others think that too. And yeah. broad, broad, broadly speaking about energy from a technical standpoint, I mean, Mark Newton of Fundstrat was on Closing Bell with me the other day and made the argument that it was ready for a breakout. But you've got Chevron, Chenier, Marathon, Pioneer, SLB. Yep. Why no Devon? And what about the proposed breakout in this space? Well, I love, I love Newton's work, and, and I, think, I think that he's, he's right. I think we've had some capitulation that took place uh, in the market. Um, now there's, it's inviting people to come back in. So look at the, the revenue growth. It's down year over year in names like Chevron and Pioneer, really across the board. But really, it's, it's also looking back at the second half of this year and looking farther out. The IEA came out and said that demand is going to outstrip supply in the second half of the year by 2 million barrels per day. The OPEC Plus is, is, is fighting that. They, they want to keep oil buoyant. There is the question of China coming back online, and I think there's a lot of pessimism right now on China. So it means we only need less growth from China in the second half of the year to actually have an impact. So Pioneer's my, my play in, in exploration. They're, they're, they're in the Permian. They have less investment to make because of where they are right now and not have to worry about offshore. All right, coming up, we'll do our chart of the day. It's Deer giving back early gains following earnings. Farmer Jim owns that. He phones in with the reaction to a very interesting, and there it is, intraday move in that stock. Higher nicely, now lower by 2%. He'll phone in next. our chart of the day now. It's Deere giving up early gains following earnings. Seema Modi joins us now to tell us exactly what happened, Seema. Uh, Scott, we saw the stocks pop on a strong earnings beat, but the minute executives referenced higher than expected inventory levels on the conference call, we did see shares start to decline. UBS analyst Stephen Fisher says those comments were interpreted as cautious because Deere has previously said that without any qualifiers, they want to rebuild inventory levels. Now that messaging is starting to change. Deere did, of course, add that farmer demand, though, remains strong. No signs of a pullback. But the other concern is that prices of large equipment is expected to moderate in the third and fourth quarter. So that's raising concerns about margins in the long term. Scott. Yeah. All right. Thanks for the setup, Seema Modi. All right. Farmer Jim Labenthal joins us now on the phone. And I gather you were feeling pretty good four hours ago. <laughs> Maybe not so much now. Hey, Scott. It's good to be on with you. Um, you know, let's, let's talk to your short term and long term. Short term, today's movement 
I can't explain it. I mean, SEMA did a very good job just there because it did happen as soon as comments were being made on the conference call. I have to say that's completely irrelevant to what the long-term thesis is here, uh, which is basically that there's going to be geographical changes in large size and where plantings are made around the globe. It's going to require new ag equipment. That new ag equipment is going to have precision farming capabilities with it, which will generate subscription revenue. The long-term aspect of this company is very much intact. And frankly, going back to the short term for a second, this was a blowout earnings number. I mean, they beat on everything. They raised guidance above where estimates are right now. So you're going to see estimates continue to go up as they have all year. Fundamentally, this is in extraordinarily good shape. I want to say one more thing, Scott. You know, this is very reminiscent of you and I talking about Cisco yesterday. I don't know if you remember that, but... 28 hours ago, Cisco Systems, after its earnings report, was 8% lower than it is right now. What I'm trying to drive at here, the short-term noise around earnings report is not something to pay attention to when the fundamentals are as intact as they are at Deere. I know, but I feel like that's almost like saying, well, in the long term, stocks always go up, so who cares about the near term and the fundamental issues that may be taking place in the economy as it relates to demand and where pricing was able to go at one point, which meant which meant your margins were were able to be higher. And that sort of evaporated. I mean, that's real. Yeah, no, I, I disagree, Scott. The fundamentals at Deere are extraordinarily intact. That's why they raised their guidance for this year above where estimates are, above where estimates are. So if Deere was willing to be traded at 11 and a half times this year, this year's earnings last night, after the report today, that's a lower multiple, which means the stock should be higher. What you're seeing today is short-term noise. It's not the long-term fundamentals, which are very much attacked. Okay, again, let's, let's take today out of it. Let's take today out of it, okay? Stock's down 2%. Yep. It's down 14% year-to-date. So why, if the story's so great, why is the stock so bad? Because every stock except for the seven bang names are down this year, down or flat. That's no reflection on Deere's fundamentals at all. This is a market where the breadth has narrowed incredibly. Everything is being sold and thrown into NVIDIA, Microsoft, Apple, etc. That will last until it doesn't. And when it turns, people will look at companies where the fundamentals are strongly intact as at Deere, and they will say this is a holding for the long run. I don't think, by the way, I don't think, Scott, this is something that you, let me be clear, you don't have to hold your nose to buy or hold Deere here. That's not what's going on. This company is great. I hear you. I appreciate you calling in, too. Uh, it's been a really interesting session for it. And uh, I'm sure you had to, you know, sort of, I don't know, just adjust the way you might be thinking about it from what looked great in the morning and what's not so great at, you know, 1247 uh, okay. on the East Coast. Uh, Jimmy, thank you. Have a yeah, good weekend. That's Jimmy. Scott, just, just really think about what happened yeah. with Cisco in the last 28 hours. I'll close there. Okay. Good stuff, Jim. Thanks. Yeah. Santoli's next with his midday word. We're back. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joining us now for his midday word. Uh, words, debt ceiling. Yes. Uh, one big piece of it, I mean, I still think the market's instinct to kind of put it in the we got this column uh, is going to be hard to shake. I think everybody 
uh, knows that the incentives are there to kind of sound like there's nothing going to happen, even if it's going to happen. But you also have, you know, coming into today, the leadership part of this market, the NASDAQ 100, running really hot. So overbought, S&P exactly at the top end of the range, uh, expiration Friday, everything coming together, yields waking up for, hey, isn't this a logical place for us to pause right here? So to me, it's about how we absorb uh, those little buffeting from the headlines uh, that's more interesting than the fact that it looked like uh, you took some of the edge off the buying in the morning. It's a ra- rather muted pause, yeah, exactly too. Right, I mean, yeah. it's not it's not some you know great pullback, and who knows, there could be a, any sort of headline that Get you yeah. over the 4,200 goal line by the, by the I, end I'm, of the day. I'm not convinced that's you know necessarily uh, you declare victory if that happens. Necessarily. Oh, I'm not saying you declare but victory no, in any way at this no, point. No, exactly. There's no all clears in this business. Yeah. Uh, but I do think it's interesting that we traded down seemingly on also Powell saying, well, rates might not have to go as high because we still might have some credit issues. I mean, the Fed runs the senior loan officer survey. If he's not going to at least listen to the message that there was a little more tightening of credit in that measure and just at least give lip service to it. I don't think there's that much surprise in that. And so you still have, uh, you know, a pause in play, even if it's a live meeting in June. I don't know. They don't apparently listen to their own staff who was saying there's going to be a recession. So, yeah, I mean, look, they have a huge staff, which is probably saying many different things at once. I hear you. All right. Good. All right. All right. We'll give them a pass. All right. I'll see you in a few. Uh, Mike Santoli joined us again, of course, on Closing Bell. We have more moves from Bryn coming up, plus final trades next. We've got a big closing bell coming up on this Friday, 3 o'clock Eastern time. Former Fed Vice Chair Rich Clarida joins me. What does he think about what Chair Powell said today and what the real road ahead is for interest rates? We'll ask him, of course. Goldman's Tony Pascarello joins as well. Get his latest take on the markets as we're seeing if we can get that close again above 4,200. That's going to be interesting. Rockefeller's Avery Sheffield as well. So we'll have a good show for you a couple hours' time. Hope you'll join me then. Bryn, you have a couple moves that we didn't get to. You bought more AbV. Talk to me. Yeah, so after the earnings earlier this month, the stock has really sold off hard after investors' concerns around the biosimilar, similars around Humira. That is well priced into the name here. And so we look at the chart technically, because I really want to match technicals with fundamentals. 143, 145 is really strong support for AbbVie. So I took the opportunity to add more. And I think what investors need to realize is that the biosimilars around Humira, I think, is priced in. You've got Skyrizi and Rinvok are going to be huge drugs. They also have their aesthetics business that we would know around Botox, et cetera. And so I think you have a company that's oversold, great fundamentals, solid technicals, 7.6% free cash flow yield, 4% right, dividend. Right, right, right. And then I sold January 160 calls. You sold BJ's as well. You've got to be quick on that, though. No, I just use that as a source of funds. Oh, so to, to buy the AbbVie. What's your final trade? XOP, Go Long Energy. Okay, thank you. Bill Baruch, what do you got? Synopsis, beat and raise, the EDA leader, designed all the chips. All right, uh, stock's not doing too much on that. Microsoft. Yeah, I just bought it, gave all the reasons, so that's the freshest trade I have. So we're going to go in the weekend, I don't know, you know, a little uncertain about where the debt ceiling talks go, whether this is uh, simply posturing. We'll see what other headlines may come between now and and closing bell. Watching that 4,200 level as well. Stocks had the highest close of the year yesterday. Can we get back to that level over the next few hours? We'll see, and I'll see you on closing bell. The exchanges now. 
You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.